What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with the acclaimed Brittany Muller, founder and consultant at DataSci 101 and former SEO scientist at Moz. Brittany started her career when she moved to Breckenridge, Colorado, chasing fresh snow and snowboard hills. She connected with a local realtor who introduced her to SEO, and after discovering search data, she never really looked back. She spent seven months preparing to rank her personal site for the term Burton US Open and ended up ranking ahead of Burton.com and received a call from their marketing team who invited her out to dinner, and this spurred her to start her own agency, which she ran for several successful years, but after being on the cutting edge, Edge of SEO and doing the speaking circuit at conferences around the world, Brittany started getting hungry for a new challenge, enter machine learning. She stumbled upon Harvard's Data Science 109 course while searching GitHub repos and dived super deep into this new field. She was eventually poached by Moz, where she spent four years as senior SEO scientist, where she rewrote the beginner's guide to SEO amongst a bunch of other content and continued her SEO research. And she later joined Hugging Face, the fastest growing machine learning community and open source ML platform. And today, Brittany has returned to her entrepreneurial roots as machine learning and SEO consultant and the founder of DataSci 101 with the goal of making LLMs like ChatGPT as accessible as possible. Brittany, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Phil. That's quite the intro. I'm so impressed. The depth of your research is incredible. Incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah. Pride myself yeah. on coming up with some interesting questions. Like I, I, most of the time, the most interesting speakers to chat with are folks that have done the interview circuits and yeah. I like find interesting answers and then I can just double down on like, okay, like let's, let's like drill down on that one point that you did there. So there's yeah. no shortage of interviews with Brittany, especially SEO context online. So yeah, it was, uh, but on top of like the, the LLM stuff that, that you've written already. So yeah, super excited to, to chat with you today. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Knack. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often, that's exactly how it feels. Knack is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to Knack's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. Knack lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at knack.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. I want to start by just like talking about how Brittany was drunk on AI hype way before a lot of us, especially in marketing, dating almost back to like 10 years when you you first built your LLM as an SEO rap generator, combining Moz's, uh, Rand's Moz blogs with Beyonce's Lemonade lyrics. It's safe to say that you were almost like a decade ahead of most when you shifted your focus from SEO to machine learning. What was the triggering factor back then that led you to have this crystal ball moment and go down this new endeavor? That's a good question, Phil. Oh my gosh. I think we're all so different as people and I think unique things fuel unique individuals. And for me, it's always been 
like this passion and like love of learning, love of tinkering and understanding how the hell something works. And I had that for a really long time in SEO and I still get to experience little like spurts of that. But I needed something to really sink my teeth into at that point because I had sort of plateaued as far as SEO experiments and all that stuff goes. And when I learned about machine learning through that Harvard CS 109 course, I, my life, like, again, like I knew it was forever changed by this because of the innate power of feeding a model data and letting it learn patterns and representations on its own. I mean, the examples that we were playing with throughout that class were already so powerful that I just... I was so confident and so sure that this would be part of the future that I knew I couldn't let go and I had to like continue deep diving. So I remember, you know, when TensorFlow first came out and how excited I was to write like it was over 200, probably close to 300 lines of code to do like a very basic kind of linear regression model with TensorFlow. And now that's all been abstracted away into just a couple lines of code. So it's exciting to see how this has progressed. And I'm sort of a Frankenstein developer of sorts. And so I like to find something that has already been built to do something. And then I like to sit there and consider how can I break that and make it do something similar, but for this over here. Um, And so, yeah, I just started incorporating different models into my life into my work, making really silly things. Like I remember <laughs> in Denver, I had a co-working space and I used to walk my computer around like a baby when I had built my first <laughs> MNIST model because it was it could recognize handwritten numbers with like a success rate of something like 90 something. I was super proud of it. So like write down a number, write down a number, like look at this. I was so <laughs> proud um, and just, yeah, I was obsessed with it. It's so fun. Very cool. What makes you amazing, I feel like, is like the the curiosity that spurs you down this new research path, but also the time you take to educate peers and like the the rest of us in in, in the marketing and in the SEO community. And I feel like you're in Denver, your endeavor with data style 101 is right in in line with these with these goals like you established the the new venture to educate the public about the creation and the capabilities of llms and your your aim is kind of to foster like public discourse educate people but also interesting ideas like alleviating the irrational fears around ai and and ml and cultivate more trust and support just like a more considered approach to, to to the future of it right and so you've actually already release some content uh, i've i've had the pleasure of reading part one and two of your guide on on llm and you're kind of on tour right now like speaking at a bunch of different events uh, i watched your uh recorded talk uh that you did for for bright on seo what's next for Brittany and, and data side 101 like what do you have in store yeah so i feel like first of all i just love finding really cool stuff and being like hey check this out like <laughs> look at what this can do. Like you can do this for whatever you're working on. And so it's just that part is so fun for me. And I think as marketers, we have been absolutely robbed with statistical knowledge. Like never in, you know, my marketing career path 
was anyone ever like, hey, like you should really get a lot better at statistics because you're going to be dealing with data all the damn time. And I wish someone would have like, you know, suggested that or helped me with that. And I think just even as like a general, like anyone, you know, that consumes content, it's so important to have just basic statistical understanding. But truly from the marketer perspective, I was like, when I took a step back and the more I had to like get statistical and data science knowledge for some of the machine learning work that I was doing, I realized like the gaping hole Mm -hmm. in the marketing industry that, you know, really is the sort of data centric data literacy gap that would empower so many marketers to make more strategic decisions, um, to find better insights, to surface, you know, to surface some of those things easier. And so that has been a real passion project of mine. And I have been working very hard on different content mediums to to communicate some of those things and communicate it in like a very different and fun way. I think the long form blog post like is is great for me because I, you know, that's kind of traditionally how I've formatted different pieces. But I love to take a page out of my friend Daisy Quaker's book where she's always like, all right, you build this big long resource. Like you have the turkey, make turkey sandwiches, you know, like <laughs> go make sandwiches with it, Brit. I'm like, oh, we all should be making more sandwiches. So that's, I'm working on that. <laughs> it's been fun. Very cool. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's It's been the, the, the so far part one and two, like insanely valuable and, and approachable, but I, I love how beautifully written it is and filled with funny but like relatable analogies as well like my my favorite quote is really early in your first part part one and it's uh, llms are essentially aliens from a different universe while they have access to all of our world's texts they lack genuine comprehension of languages nuances of our realities the intricacies of human experience and knowledge and i, I didn't really have a good question to ask you about this in all honesty i just wanted to create a mid-journey image with aliens for to accompany it. this header but I'd love for you to unpack this uh, a bit further. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. So I remember reading, like, in one of the more technical books that I have, I forget which one it is, but um, they're describing it as like, you know, these large language models are essentially, it's essentially feeding some bean in a black cave, Hmm. all of the world's text. And we have no understanding of how this thing lives or, you know, we have no shared experiences with these things. And so that's what gave me the idea for the alien. Um, It's so funny and I've worked so hard to come up with these analogies. I find (laughs) little post-its all over. Like yesterday I found the one where I was like, oh, baseball, like baseball things to communicate encoder decoder. Like it's so (laughs) silly, but I think it's important to kind of break that stuff down in a way that people can connect with because it is really hard to communicate some of this stuff. And um, yeah, so yeah, if that makes sense, it really is essentially an alien in a dark black cave that has consumed all of the world's text and is just really clever at sounding proficient at a Mm. bunch of general things. But when it comes to like going deep on one particular subject or any sort of edge cases, it I mean, it has no idea. And then you take it to like the real world where, you know, even us doing this podcast right now, we might assign like 
a large language model agent to say, hey, go do this podcast with Phil, but it doesn't understand like take one step with your right foot. Once like all the things we don't even think about, like breathing and blinking, it doesn't know anything about, right? Like it's it's crazy. It's actually mm-hmm. crazy to think about. Yeah, it's really good at making it seem like it, it knows what it's talking about or it, it understands things. And I think that like most people would agree that LLMs aren't knowledge databases, but there's like a bit of misalignment on whether they're reasoning engines or not. Uh, you've explained in a few spots that ChatGPT is a giant probabilistic engine without reasoning capabilities. Uh, but one of the articles I've read, uh, the CEO and founder of every Dan Shipper. He wrote this article, which he claims uh, that after attending an, a, a talk at Sequoia, where Sam Altman said that GPT models are actually reasoning engines, not knowledge databases. So interestingly, when I asked ChatGPT, like he sides or it sides with you that it can stimulate reasoning-like responses, but is not a reasoning engine. So would love for you to explain that stance further. Oh my gosh, this is so wild and probably gets a bit convoluted, but I love this question so much because I think it's an important thing to consider, especially because so many people are really hyping up this technology to be these like all-knowing, all-powerful things. Yeah. Um, and so it really does kind of come down to what what is reasoning, right? Like, do we even have a clear definition? of what reasoning is and if we do does this fit right because if we were to say like just sounds confident about you know various domain questions like sure then it might be reasoning but it's a it's still a word guessing machine yeah and i think we really lack as an industry just core definitions of some of the words we sling around carelessly as marketing jargon And I think that's really dangerous because it also starts to paint this technology as like perfect or, you know, human-like capabilities, which it certainly does not have right now. Um, And we're also talking in just the purest form sense, right? Like a large language model is inherently a word predicting machine. Um, But if you connect it to different things, right, like actions or different um, informational resources, it can start to do some some sort of like rough planning, but even then it's like, is it really? Um, and here's here's where I like, I really love the question and I'm continuously challenging myself to think differently because I, I to be fair, like I go back and forth on a lot of these topics and I really look towards the experts and the people developing this technology to have some of these answers mm-hmm. for me. And so this past, um, the past week, I was at Neurips in New Orleans, which if you've read any like computer development books or machine learning books, it's hard to come across one that doesn't mention Neurips as like a really like founding part of the space and the competitions it's hosted and developed and blah, blah, blah. So really was excited to figure some of this stuff out there. And there, Phil, there was a whole track one day around LLM reasoning. Mm. And let me tell you, that room was so packed. It was <laughs> it was the biggest fire hazard I've ever seen. <laughs> like we were shoulder to shoulder, like all along the sides. There was a couple thousand people in a room that should have only had like a couple <laughs> hundred. It was insane. And I remember just standing there like, 
what the fuck? Like this is <laughs> crazy. Because again, like inherently, so many experts are very clear that like these are not reasoning engines. But I'm standing there like, what are we all doing here? Like what what are we doing? Um and then yeah, you see some of like the founders of computer science in different talks of like I was sitting in one um that was about LLM agent collusion mm. and how agents can like team up and like gang up on like the user. And I mean it's just like we got into like crazy world there. <laughs> and so it was interesting to see such conflicting thoughts and ideas throughout the whole conference, right? You have all these experts saying like, they're not reasoning. Then you have these tracks that are all about reasoning and people are everywhere. I mean, so again, I think it's important to keep an open mind, but I think we do start to get a bit carried away with ourselves when we don't have a clear definition. So it really comes down to that. And I hate the benchmarks we currently use for LLMs. There's a bunch of great resources around this in particular where like human exams are not a good benchmark for large language models yeah. because they've seen all they've seen iterations of them like they're just parroting back answers right. to that stuff so that's a terrible terrible mm. um benchmark and when you change the questions in a way that they haven't seen before they do very poorly mm. um another resource is uh, Emily Bender et al. wrote uh, this really great paper comparing these large language models and benchmarks to Grover in the Everything Museum on Sesame Street, where it's like these arbitrary rooms, right? Of like one room is things that are on walls and another is like things that like water. Like it's just so <laughs> random. And it really proves how impossible it is to essentially evaluate a system that is supposed to do everything, all, you know, this general knowing system. We just, we don't have anything like that yet. So yeah, it's a, it's a, we're living in a wild time, Bill. What a time to be alive. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I sparked uh, something that could probably turn into its own, its own podcast episode in of itself. I want to, I want to like, what, what was your, your main takeaway that you walked away from, from, uh, from that, that fire hazard of a, of a talk? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I walked away with the, I, you know what the biggest takeaway was from like the conference as a whole is like, this shit is so fuzzy. Hmm. No one knows. That's like (laughs) the big takeaway is like, I saw so much like conflicting information and even research that it was like wow i really thought i was going to walk away with some concrete like oh this is what i'm going to take into 2024 for like you know talks and work that i do and instead i'm like more confused than i was before (laughs) which is crazy um and it was also just really cool though to also see like these are humans like a lot a lot of the people we kind of rip apart online and like seeing seeing them in person was like wow like we're all just trying to do our best and you know and unfortunately some of these bigger tech companies like what's in their financial best interest isn't always in the best interest of the general public Mm. and that's something i'm constantly like keeping an eye on yeah as much excitement as there is around this new technology there's a lot of considerations and maybe like the darker side of things that these big 
tech companies aren't shining too bright of a light on. And I feel like you're doing a good job at demystifying that and disclosing that to to the public in a lot of your talks. And in part two of your guide, you offer a com another compelling analogy. Uh, LLMs are like hot dogs. Understanding its complex and sometimes unsavory composition is yeah. essential before deciding to take a bite of that hot dog, but many yeah. often deliberately ignore what is inside that hot dog, mirroring this idea of like what what you're talking about in in part two. So like the the key question now is like how how do we get more people to care about what's in their hot dog or or how the LLM is built? How do we engage more yeah. people in this conversation about the ethical and the technical aspects of AI development? Oh my God, I love that question so much. And I've been joking and I really might do this now because like, I just, I keep saying this, but I want to make t-shirts that just says what's in the data hmm. because that's like, that's what it comes down to is, you know, what's in the data set? What is it that we're consuming? And quite frankly, it's gross. Hmm. It is all of the dark parts of the internet. Yeah. Um, art, it just news broke today, although this has been like circulating for months. Um, about the largest image uh, data set contains child abuse imagery. Like that is horrifying, mm -hmm. absolutely terrifying that this is what models like Midjourney have been trained on. Um, and it, it's a really important thing for people to be aware of in terms of like these bigger conversations around ethics. Because part of the problem is the the why why are we here? Why are we why is this like happening? Is because um, a couple of years ago the researchers at OpenAI figured out that oh the more data we feed these things the better they sound the more human they sound the more confident they sound and any like bad stuff that comes out of it we could just put um you know guardrails in place so that it doesn't spew toxic hate speech and terrible things but unfortunately that means that these models essentially magnify all of the ugly parts of what it is to like live in a society right so all of those things live within these massive uncurated unconsented data sets um yeah, it's very, very scary. Like it, the hot dog analogy is so perfect in my mm -hmm. biased opinion because most people really don't quite understand what goes into something like ChatGPT or MidJourney today. I hope that changes over time, but I know that these big tech companies, I mean, that's they outsource all of this stuff through third parties and do a really good job kind of covering their tracks and burying some of these stories. But I think it's so important to understand like that this stuff is in there because it will continue to sort of leak out um, in different ways. And it already has, right? Like we've already had tons of problems with some of these things, but it's so important for as like we continue to adopt this technology, the only way we progress with this is with general understanding. The public needs to have some rough fundamental grasp of what these things are even doing to feel comfortable using it or employing it in their work in their lives yeah definitely agree and i think that your your part two of the llm guide like 
explains it really well. Like you, you talk about bias first and then the dirty laundry, uh, kind of after. So I, I want to like unpack the, the bias element first. Um, you talk about, uh, C4 colossal clean crawled corpus as the massive data set used to train, uh, NLP models like GPT-3 and T5 and how Wikipedia is one of the top contributors in the C4 data set. And, you know, Wikipedia is obviously highly biased. The majority of its contributors are 87% male, 27 years old, educated, single, without children. This lack of diversity amongst uh, cont contributors leads to obviously a very narrow viewpoint of a bunch of various uh, subjects. And you highlighted that this... <clears throat> Sorry, you highlighted that this leads to several biases like racial, geo, as well as gender and, and a few others. How can we work towards creating a more balanced and unbiased data set while still leveraging the vast and valuable information available from sites like Wikipedia? And maybe like a follow up to that is like how how can marketers who are listening to this right now, like ethically use AI tools, aware of the inherent biases to create campaigns that are fair and unbiased, particularly in like culturally sensitive markets? Yeah, yeah, such a good question. And I think the the way around this would be thoughtfully curated and documented data sets, which we're working on, but we're still like a ways off in terms of having something as vast and as powerful to fuel something like what we see with ChatGPT. But that, in my opinion, is a step closer because if we even have like rough understanding as to what went into a model, we can know what to look out for, mm -hmm. right? We can be more aware of what those issues and problems might be emerging from this technology. Um, and you'd be shocked at how little documentation there is, even at some of these massive tech companies, with the data that they've trained these bigger models on. I mean, it's mm. it's pretty crazy. Um, and yeah, you look to something as like reputable as Wikipedia, and you see how that's riddled with issues as well. So it's it really does come down to how can we have a more representative corpus of what we have in the real world, right? Of mixed views and perspectives and history covering the different people that live in it. I mean, Black history alone is like largely, you know, underrepresented on Wikipedia. Um, and as consumers, it's so important to be aware of this. And something that I try to do through my talks, because I feel like it might be most memorable is like through examples and stories of how this has gone wrong previously and what to look out for. Um, one recent thing I came across where it really um, kind of shocked me that the marketers signed off on this um, was with the PGA. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So the PGA released these player headshots that were basically completed, completed the body using AI. And when I first saw this, I was like, how cool is this? Like mm -hmm. a melding of like two of my favorite things. And then I'm flipping through the images and I get to Tony Finau and they have him and he's a, you know, darker skinned man. And they have him basically, it's, it looks like he's standing in a, like a dump. It's like all dirt 
dirt mounds in the background. Um, and then the only Asian player is basically seen looking like he's building something, like building something out of like wood and I don't know. Very strange. But they're essentially the only two, you know, non-white players that essentially break this headshot background. And the fact that they, you know, I'm assuming just thought it was funny and didn't pause to consider why would this be and instead let it go through to Instagram. And it also like, oh, my God, like I think of little kids right now. It's like, how are these things going to shape their worldview? Right. So that should have been stopped or maybe highlighted as an issue with these models before ever seeing the light of day. So, yeah, things like that, marketers have to be on high alert for, you know, like especially it's so clear and evident with the with the image generation stuff. Um, They're starting to get a little bit better with diversity, but you really have to prime them for it. Um, But yeah, having that general awareness, I think it's everything. Yeah, general awareness is is one thing, but like you said, I think the the regulation aspect of it, like before we just like press publish on that stuff, like yeah. let's let's have a team of people who are responsible for like double checking stuff, like hey, like how does how does this look like? How how might some of the biases in the data set contributed to the output of these images? Like, yeah, maybe they're kind of interesting at first glance, but like, hey, why are all the white golfers have a normal background versus yeah. our two colored golfers who like wait? Oh, let, let, let's double check this. Let's yeah. let's hit the rerun on Mid Journey a couple of times. Yeah. Like, let's What's get some. On? consistency here let's figure some stuff out so yeah i like the the yeah. regulation part of like the there's there's responsibility on on the marketer's shoulders to when you're playing around with this stuff like as as fun as it might seem and and addictive also like myself being a mid-journey user like there there are consequences to to the stuff that you you, you put out there from the end result so i think that like understanding like the data set and and the biases that are in there This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Census. Census is a data activation platform loved by marketing teams at Sonos, Canvas, Crocs, Notion, and more. As a customer, I've experienced the magic of Census firsthand. Their no-code audience hub and reverse ETL enable me to use our cloud data warehouse to power growth and create highly personalized customer journeys in all of my marketing platforms like Iterable and Google Ads. If you like the Humans of MarTech podcast graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing a monthly raffle for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. Enter to win at getcensus.com slash humans. I think that like that's that's already come like a, a pretty uh like not a super long way, but I feel like chatting with other folks like they they understand that part of it, like the bias in the models, like it's it's easy to understand, like it's it's easy to forget about it when you're using the tool and you can't really do anything about it. But I feel like there's there's an even an even darker side of of LLMs that you talk about in, in part two. Um I watched the cleaners uh documentary about the people who have to look at the most gruesome and 
awful content to yeah. label that content uh, like before it goes on on social sites uh, so they'd never make it to those actual platforms it was absolutely shocking and understandably you know no one talks about this stuff yeah. especially on the big tech companies OpenAI used Kenyan workers at less than like two bucks an hour to make ChatGPT less toxic. Like there's so many of these stories that are just like hidden from public sight. What steps can we take as an industry to like be more ethically minded when we manage and, and support content moderators who are exposed to like all this harmful material? Like should, should there be an industry wide standard for treatment and, and support of these content moderators? Like how can we get more people to even know about this stuff? Like I, I kind of knew about it, but like when I watched the documentary, I was, I was shocked by how massive the industry was in, in a specific country that was behind a lot of this work. It is shocking. It's so disturbing. Um, and Oh, it's it's crazy as well because it's so well hidden that it I think it it is very difficult to kind of surface some of this stuff to regular users who again just get the shiny end product. They get the YouTube hot dog and they have no idea all of like the horrendous things that you know these cleaners have essentially seen and removed from YouTube. Um it's it's really tricky. I do hope we get to a point where hopefully AI could help assist with some of this stuff so that we aren't putting humans through this like very uh, traumatic experience. Um, and it's also, yeah, it's just there's so many interesting layers to it as well, right? Like we have these are the people that are deciding those edge cases as well. Um, and so lines get a little bit blurry and yeah, I don't know. I I'll, I want to continue, you know, highlighting that so that people are aware. And I think we can put pressure on some of the tech companies to um, be more responsible in how they distribute those tasks and ensure that, you know, mental health services are provided, that they uh, these people are taken care of or, you know, Oh, I don't know. I don't have all the answers for that, but I do think it's a really important area to kind of consider and think about and push back on, quite frankly. Yeah, so important. Thank you for yeah. for making this a part of like all all of your talks and like it's yeah. it's it's baked into your guide and yeah, it it really opened my eyes to like the the ethics. I kind of like knew most of it, but yeah, the the cleaner stuff was was really eye opening. And um, yeah, I I think the only thing we can do, like you said, like putting more pressure on the bigger companies to like how how is this a thing? Like in in twenty twenty four, like how are we treating people that are doing this type of work like this? But yeah, like the the dirty laundry, the ethics, like there's 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 a dark side to to, to LLMs and 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 AI and, and ML. Um, but there there are like a lot of like you know good things and and happier things too. And I think that like um, one thing that in my research for this interview stood out, like I, I went through a lot of your, your tweets. Like I have followed you on, on Twitter for a long time. I think the first time I heard about you was uh, in Seattle at MozCon. Um, I forget if you were talking about AI or SEO, probably, probably a mix of both, but I've been following you on, on, on Twitter since, and you've got 
amazing takes. Uh, one that you, I think it was a, a recent tweet, like one of the things that I love the most about marketing operations, like MarTech is, is kind of my niche. It's like this, all this like puzzle solving that's that's required in, in marketing. And you wrote this compelling tweet that beautifully captures the human essence of problem solving. And the uh, it, it was something like, yeah, or it's not something like I copy pasted exactly what you wrote. So it was the, the idea in the shower, a conclusion in your dream and the solution at dinner. And mm -hmm. you have this like fear that AI's dehumanization might potentially rob future generations of this like beautiful uh, process, yeah. if you will. That's that's very human. I'm only halfway through it, but it resonates a lot with Eric Larson's book uh, called The Myth of Artic Artificial Intelligence, um, which highlights this idea that like the distinct nature of human intelligence and the overlooked role of abductive reasoning in AI research today. And you talked a bit about this at the start of the show with like the, the baseball uh, analogy potentially with this here. So I'm curious to learn about that, but like, it's probably just a matter of time until research evolves from deductive and inductive inference to embracing abductive inference and enabling this potential form of reasoning, the kind of intuitive problem solving that could potentially be positioned to replace the unique, uniquely human experience of like that eureka moment that, that you talked about. Like how, how can we maintain this uniquely human aspect of creativity and intuition in the face of like advancing AI tech in the next couple of years? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, it's so funny because I wrote that tweet because I had such an incredible experience figuring out this very technical problem for a client. And I had basically built like a working like prototype to solve it. And I knew exactly what I wanted it to be from the get go. So I had a clear like end goal. But getting there took so much hard work, so much trial and error that I was going losing my mind. And it it really was like those moments like at dinner or like I I had multiple dreams that helped solve like a couple issues I was having because I was just thinking about it nonstop. And so I'd had all these like mini moments of like Eureka, like, oh my God, why did why haven't I tried this? Like I need to do this. Um, and I wonder, you know, how many of those we will rob future people of with AI shortcuts. Um, because I now I, I could have very easily, you know, have used ChatGPT to get me there a lot faster. But it was a really important and beautiful process for me to, like, figure that out on my own. And it felt so good um, to do that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's so funny that you mentioned that book and explain a little bit about what it's unpacking in terms of, like, human thought. And that was something... I heard a lot of at Neurops last week was like, you know, the thinking fast and slow, the part one and part two of our brains. How can we, you know, better craft these machines to essentially carry some of that? And there's some really fascinating um, research right now on that, right? Like we know that if we tell a model, large language model to like take time to go through the steps itself to find the conclusion to a problem, it tends to do better. Like mm. asking it to like pause and quote unquote think, right? It's not really thinking, but to give it time does lead to better results. Mm. And something that 
Andrew Ng actually said that I thought was so clever was when you're struggling to get a model to do a particular thing, write out your prompt and give it to a human, right? Like, does it even make sense to a person? And oftentimes we're, we aren't clear enough, right? We aren't, you know, explicitly stating what it is that we're trying to get a model to do. And I think, and this was said really beautifully on um, your episode with Sarah McNamara, your episode 100. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I love that or she or you had mentioned how like uh, stakeholders still aren't clear at asking what they want. And so our <laughs> jobs are totally secure. I was like, absolutely. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, that is totally it. And that's what we run into as well as marketers is like, we aren't always that good at explaining what we want either. And so figuring out how to like really kind of clarify that and streamline it um, will be good. And again, like this technology really, really elevates when we start connecting it to other functionality. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when we're talking about it today in 2023, it's just the large language models. But when connected to different systems or models that already do things really well in a deterministic like manner versus probabilistic, we can come up with some really, really powerful solutions. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it will be so expensive that I worry that a lot of these capabilities will remain in the hands of the tech giants for now. Yeah, maybe not to like the the level of sophistication that you're talking about, but I feel like one one area that I go to when you talk about like combining GPT-4 or ChatGPT with like other sources of data like OpenAI a couple months ago released GPTs and the, the ability to kind of like customize that and pair that with specific niche data sources or or a training data set that you have access to that GPT-4 might not have access to. Like it, what, what excitement do you have around that stuff? Like we're, we're prepping for an episode on like how we've built our own custom GPTs for the podcast and how to prep for interviews and, and like repurpose the episode into, into a blog post. But how, how many GPTs has Brittany created so far? Are you a fan? Oh, you're going to hate this answer. I've created exactly zero GPT <laughs> because that functionality was already available through the API. So you don't okay. need to do any of it. <laughs> Um, but where I get excited and what I've been playing with is sort of adding on to that functionality in a way that um basically expands capabilities through assistant planning. Mm. And so um you can do some really cool stuff with like the LLM agents where you could have multiple. Um, and that's great for fact checking or reducing quote unquote hallucinations. Um, but sending a specific task like customer support through a really well thought out formula, essentially, that has like all the instructions for these LLM assistants to respond really, really well is exciting to me. Um, I saw some really cool examples at NeurIPS. So I was like, holy shit. And it's nothing crazy sophisticated, but it's just thoughtful. And I think that is where we see the value add, right? It's not in like these big, sexy, wild things. It's going to be in like the time-saving opportunities or that both help 
you know, help us as marketers, but also help the end user as well. Um, so those, I get really, really excited about those. I also, you know, just in general, I get really excited about different healthcare applications. Um, I get excited about like wildlife conservation efforts and the stuff that they're doing with drone technology is just so cool right now. Um, yeah, there's so many cool applications. The The t- tricky part is like there's there is a real lack of resources and financial support for some of what I might deem like the more impactful things that we could do for the world, right? There is a total lack of funding for for things that aren't going to like return all that investment, yeah. right? So uh, something to consider. And I hear this a lot as well on the AI ethics side of things is we're building this technology that has an inverse effect on, on people with the fewest resources, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that those of us with access and power to this technology can essentially, we will wield the benefits first. And the people that this technology affects the most through environmental impact, through some of the bias and ethical issues, will will see the value of it at the very last. Like they will be the last to get this technology. Mm-hmm. And that really like makes me sick. Um so figuring out ways that we can empower, you know, different populations of people with this technology is super exciting. There's, I saw a couple of really cool papers, although not enough, on the global south and the different things that AI researchers are doing there to basically empower teachers and students with some of this technology through the use of um, text because they don't have access to, to Wi-Fi connection. So mm. stuff like that's really really exciting to me. Very cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. I think that is super powerful. Some very exciting stuff there. Um, One mission that we have on the show is like this idea of future proofing uh, marketers and and, and folks that work in in SEO and, and marketing ops. And I feel like a lot of what you're talking about are, are are things that you know might be like passion projects, things that you know at some point people might want to like double down onto. And like you, you actually predicted that uh, on top of the need for basic data science knowledge, like you talked about, like you know, why aren't we teaching statistical analysis and like basic yeah. stag sig stuff and and marketing courses? You're predicting that the surge in AI may lead to more uh, potentially Wikipedia spam and intentional uh, writing errors as human markers, right? So like, I want to double down on the increased demand for soft skills that you're kind of predicting. Uh, How can marketers balance the need to level up their technical chops in data science while still also keeping an eye on upping their people skills because as you know the the, the surge continues those will continue to be uh, important as well yeah i'm really excited about those two things converging mm. so like the workshop instructor who can lean on otter.ai to record the workshop and you know, know that we'll have images of whatever the team is working on so that they can be more human. They can be more present. Um, Same goes for like meetings. I feel like I'm a better communicator with some of this technology that I know is sort of taking notes for me or for the team. Um, So I get really, really excited about that. And also, I think it helps hold people accountable. You know, I don't know if I get confused with Otter and the other one, but one like says who talked the most during the meeting and who asked the best questions. 
Um, that sort of, sort of insights is so fascinating and fun for me. Um, yeah, so I think that that technology is certainly very, very exciting. But if I, I continue to challenge marketers that, you know, have traditionally been interested in getting a bit more technical is like you really don't have an excuse now. This is the world's best assistant, right? Like I used to buy developers lunch all the time, <laughs> all the time or like beers or whatever, just to get like info and like, well, how can I do this? And like, yeah. I I carried so much guilt from over asking engineers <laughs> for support and questions that it was like not healthy. And now that I have the freedom to just ask away on a tool that is so good at getting me those insights in the flash of an eye, it's it's um I feel like I have a superpower. It's so exciting. And I think people need to really like leverage that for what it is that they're working on. And again, like you don't really have an excuse now because it's just unbelievable what this stuff can do. I mean, you get stuck in Google Sheets trying to do something, go to chat GPT, right? Ask it how to do that task. Um, oh my gosh, I've used it for so many things that <laughs> it just really, it's incredible. So I think that's exciting to get more people like technically savvy and building things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And then on the flip side, I think the soft skills will be more important than ever, ever. And let me tell you what, we need soft skills in the AI industry. There is a large population of people building this technology with very high IQs and very low EQs. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that to diminish any of these people in general. Like I'm just, it's, that's an observation. Yeah. And quite frankly, I, I would have put myself in the boat in, in terms of it's not going to be any of those people that have been using this technology up until this point to think of the brilliant next steps. I'm, I get super, super excited about kind of being a catalyst for some of this information so that domain experts like you can come up with like the brilliant MarTech solution that I would have never thought about or never considered. And it's even like, you know, like the stay-at-home moms and, you know, wow. um, people caring for a loved one who's going through a medical crisis. Like there's, there's real world applications that I want to see solutions for right like how can we just in general make people's lives easier better more efficient um and again i think empowering people non-technical people to make some of those like application ideas or considerations is what's going to level all this up because traditionally and unfortunately all the attention goes to kind of the gpu providers right yes. it's all the aws and google cloud but like in order for those to even stay afloat and available, we need applications to like blow up and be successful and provide real world value um, while obviously like mitigating harm and being very careful about how we do it. But yeah, so I, I get really, really excited about that stuff. And even, you know, learning about different applications, it's it becomes more and more evident how essential the domain experts are. That's the bottleneck in AI. Yeah. It's no longer data and it's no longer... AI researchers, it's domain experts. Mm. Isn't that crazy? I think that's so exciting. Um, so I hope people can kind of like get excited about that and really kind of learn the fundamentals to have that power of like going about your day and realizing, oh, like 
this could definitely be automated, right? We could use something like what I just learned about to do this. This is a fantastic answer. I think there's like a, a blueprint for future-proofing your job, but just like upskilling and like rethinking the way that you're you're working right now. And it's not just like learning how to double down on on the people skills, but also like the the access that you have to expand your your technical skills with with tools like ChatGPT. Brittany, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like we we've done a good job balancing the excitement, also yeah. like the we need to think about the darker side of things. Also, um, if you've listened to a couple episodes, you know that we end all of our uh, interviews with one question: You're an outdoor adventurer, an avid snowboarder, an international keynote speaker, a writer, an SEO consultant got a lot going on in your life one question we ask all of our guests is how do you remain happy and successful in your career how do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy that's i love this question i've been thinking about this for days now and i'm like <laughs> i don't even know how to answer that and the more i thought about it the more i realized that like i i don't prioritize happiness i really work hard to prioritize meaning. Hmm. And so for me, that means quality over quantity. Uh, and it means like really loving and feeling passionately about the work that I'm doing and that it will have a positive effect on others. That to me at the end of the day is so much richer and more fulfilling than, you know, filling my days with dopamine hits. Um, so I, I mean, it's obviously important to, you know, prioritize like fun and happiness but i really like i i feel like there was a period in my life where i went quite a while without feeling like i was doing meaningful work and meaningful mm -hmm. things and being able to identify that and be like ooh that's you know that's not a healthy thing and for me personally i really sort of need that in my life so that i would say that and that feels sometimes better than like just pure happiness in my opinion is like oh shit, like we were able to build this thing that really helped all these people do this or that makes me really, really excited. And so I try to use that as like the North Star. Very cool. Super powerful. Brittany, this has been super fun. Uh, anything else you want to plug for folks? I'll share links to uh, your guide, uh, Data Science uh, 101. Uh, anything else you want to plug? Not really. I think, you know, books are a cheat code. Like, People have like forgotten about books, I feel like. And there's so many great reads out there that can help support people through like these changing times. Um, and so, yeah, some of those, I guess, like resisting AI is really, really good. Um, there's a bunch I can send you links to and we can throw them in the read. Awesome. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Brittany, okay. thank you so much for your time. This is a super fun, very powerful conversation. Uh, yeah, super important stuff, but also exciting, crazy times to be living right now. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Phil. This episode was also brought to you by Iterable. 
Your customers didn't fall in love with a robot, they fell in love with your brand. Your customer data can be more than generic conversation starters, they can be meaningful relationship starters. Iterable makes it easy to turn your data into joyful interactions. As a customer myself, along with companies like Redfin, Calm, and Box, I've seen how Iterable is leading the way as an AI-powered marketing automation platform. While the old guard is still struggling to update their user interfaces from the mid-2000s, Iterable is way ahead of the game with a drag-and-drop journey builders, A-B testing, and AI features. Iterable keeps you ahead of the game with the latest AI features so your customers continue falling in love with your brand over and over. Check them out at iterable.com and tell them we sent you.